This season of Life on a Plate is sponsored by Bellazoo, the amazing suppliers of Mediterranean and Middle Eastern ingredients. Their range includes premium olive oils and vinegars, pestos, pastes, and preserved lemons. And if you haven't yet tried their signature Rosa Rissa, which is a staple in my fridge, then you are in for a treat. Bellazoo started 30 years ago when two friends, George and Adam, drove a van full of olives back from France. They began supplying chefs, then home cooks, and have never looked back. Bellazoo ingredients are restaurant quality, and I've genuinely been a fan for a very long time. Their tahini from Nablus has a very special place in my kitchen shelf. It's so nutty and flavoursome. Their ingredients are such a simple way to enhance other flavours, and they transform any dish. Bellazoo source and develop their products very carefully without compromising on quality and have gone above and beyond in their commitment to the environment and to looking after their suppliers. To find out more, go to waitrose.com forward slash Bellazoo to discover the range for yourself. Hi, I'm Yasmin Khan. And you're listening to Life on a Plate, the podcast from Waitrose. Throughout the season, my co-host, Alison Okavy and I are going to be talking to a range of fantastic guests from many walks of life and asking them to share their stories through the food memories, dishes and ingredients that mean the most to them. Hi, Yasmin. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Alison. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. What have you been up to? Have you been eating or doing anything fun? I have. I am currently up to my eyeballs in baked sweet pastries because it's Thanksgiving today, which is one of my favourite food holidays. And I love a pumpkin pie, a pecan pie, a sweet potato pie. Basically, the kitchen is filled with all these warming spices like nutmeg and ginger and cinnamon and allspice. Mm. And uh, I love Thanksgiving. I love the food, but it also feels like it's basically a little warm up for Christmas. I love baking too, but I also really love exploring what's on the shelves this time of year and all the Christmas lines are in, in branch at the moment. And there's some great Christmas treats that we as a family are slowly working our way through. What have you been eating then? We recently discovered the new cherry and almond stolen bites Mm. and they're just that perfect slice to have with a cup of tea or after dinner i tell you what the northern europeans like the germans Mm. they just have some of the best sweet christmas treats i think i love stollen and i really love liebkuchen too which are these lovely um kind of gingerbready biscuits uh so i kind of yeah always get myself a pack of those they're lovely i mean we've got recipes online for that but we also sell them Mm. as a little selection box too so uh, you can make them or just buy them I did not know that actually Mm. I'm going to add that to my weekly shop have a treat so you've got something to nibble on while you're watching telly exactly it's that time of year isn't it I have spent a lot of this week curled up in front of the telly which is pretty appropriate for this week's guest actually because we've got a bit of a TV star joining us today we have. He's a presenter, a writer, a broadcaster, Reggie Yates. Now, Reggie is only 38, but he's already been working in the public eye for three decades. So we had so much to talk about. 
We certainly did. Now, Reggie Yates began his career as a child actor, appearing in shows like Desmond's and Grange Hill. And he's worked as a presenter, a voice actor, and a DJ on Freak FM Radio, as well as, of course, for many years, Radio One. He's also now a highly respected documentary maker, and his work includes his series, Reggie Yates the Insider, which he filmed in places such as a refugee camp in Iraq and a Texan jail, kind of really going into some hard-hitting issues. Wow, what a body of work. It really is, isn't it? And it doesn't stop there because he's also a filmmaker with work including last year's film, Make Me Famous, and his latest project, a full-length comedy feature called Pirate, which is out at the end of November and celebrates the UK garage music scene at the turn of the millennium. He was a wonderful person to interview, really down to earth and very ready to talk about authenticity and finding his own voice. He really was. I absolutely love this chat. It's been one of my favourites of the whole season. So here he is, our conversation with Reggie Yates. Thank you so much for joining us, Reggie, on Life on a Plate. Uh, There's so much to talk to you about today, but we're going to try and cover the key exciting things that are going on right now for you. One of which, actually, is your new film, your debut as a feature writer for a film. And um, I tell you what, you've actually made my week this week because I watched the trailer and then yesterday uh, I went for a walk and like I thought there's got to be a playlist associated with this because I also was a big garage head at the, you know, around that time. I'm a couple of years older than you. And just even the trailer of the film has so much energy. So why don't you tell us what Pirates is all about? Well, thank you for putting a big silly smile on my face because the, <laughs> uh, the Pirates playlist is um, a ton of UK garage tunes. They're essentially seminal. And um, I made the playlist after writing the script. So in the early stages of production, I shared that playlist with the crew, with the cast, with the production and everybody was walking around singing Miss Dynamite records <laughs> and Walkie <laughs> records. So it really set things up beautifully. So uh, for those of you that don't know who are listening, uh, Pirates, as we said, is uh, is out November 26th. It is my first film as a writer-director, and I'm very excited about it. And uh, it's a film about, well, we're essentially calling it the world's shortest road movie. Um, it's about three boys at 18 years old uh, driving from North London to South London on New Year's Eve. 1999 in a yellow Peugeot 205 in an attempt to get into the massive UK garage club night twice as nice. And that's essentially it. Uh, It's a comedy drama that's coming of age uh, about uh, friendship, but about love. And um, the backdrop, given the time period, is UK garage music and all the trappings of that. And the beautiful thing about it is that in a weird way, it's almost like a, a love letter to London and a time capsule for an era and a subculture that hasn't really been highlighted. So I'm just really excited to share it with a, a generation of kids that didn't grow up around that music, including my cast, which is hilarious. And there's something really special about being the first person to really shine a light on a subculture that was huge in your formative years. No, it was really great. And uh, the other part of the trailer that really cracked me up, actually, was a little joke that you had in about plantain and plantain, which, again, just really reminded me of two friends of mine having this argument like years ago. So for people who don't know what this debate is about, can you fill us in, Reggie? 
Yeah, well, um, it kind of depends on uh, where you are from and where you are in the world, really. Uh, the debate is ongoing in terms of how to pronounce platanos, plantain or plantain or whatever else you want to call it. Basically, that sweet banana that so many of us have cooked over the years or grown up around or heard about, um, it's forever been a debate as to how to actually pronounce it. And uh, particularly as a, a young uh, kid raised by uh, West African parents in London, you know, we pronounce it plantain, whereas the massive Caribbean contingent in the city that I'm from refer to it as plantain. And so as somebody who frequents the Caribbean restaurants, um, it kind of made sense to throw it into the film. And there is a scene in the movie where our three characters go to a Caribbean takeout and deal with an amalgamation of all of the most difficult Caribbean uh, <laughs> Caribbean takeaway practitioners, shall we say, uh, who have made my life difficult over the years. And they <laughs> then get into an argument about the pronunciation. And it's, yeah, it's a bit of, it's like, it's a bit of an in-joke, but at the same time, it's just straight up something that should put a smile on your face. So you grew up in London, you grew up in North, you then moved South as a teenager. I'm in the South, Yasmin's in the North. And so we, we've we always got a little bit of a banter going on. So for me, kind of it's planting because all the shops around here are, you know, Caribbean. And Alison, you'll know that this is an incredibly sensitive subject and <laughs> one that I'm going to tread with caution. As a teenager, I did move and it was a massive culture shock because, I mean, back then, more than now, I, I guess there was a massive, massive difference uh, in the culture of North and South. And I don't claim either, but I know both. And it's weird because, you know, I, I came to South London in what was quite a formative time uh, yeah. at 14 years old. So, yeah, I've definitely grown on both sides of the water. So you grew up in London. You had Ghanaian parents. What was food like at home? What did you eat growing up? Well, first of all, I still have those Ghanaian parents unless there's something <laughs> you know I don't. <laughs> Thankfully, they're still with us and um, they are um, and have always been people. And I guess it's the case for the entire family. Food is a huge part of the culture, you know, uh, not just um, being West African, but being working class. Um, the winds are very small. And by that, I mean, you know, um, having a clean house, uh, having new clothes or having a good meal was a yeah. huge win. And this isn't me playing my tiny violin. It's the reality, uh, particularly growing up in council estates up and down the country. And that was certainly a huge element of my past. So a good meal was a big deal. And food was something that was varied, uh, predominantly West African, you know. Um, I think thinking back, a lot of that was uh, due to the reality of it actually being affordable. So mm -hmm. um, we lived, as I was growing up in North London, and would travel to travel. We'd walk because we didn't have a car, so we'd always walk down to Dorsten Market, um, mm -hmm. and uh, Ridley Road had everything. So you'd buy everything from your yams to your uh, plantains, plantains, not tins, <laughs> plantains. Uh, and you'd buy your meat, you'd buy your tin tomatoes, you'd buy all of the stuff that you needed to cook from. So it was a lot of um, rice and stews and uh, plantains and, and yams, really. That was what we would eat a lot of because it was affordable. You could cook bulk. So I started to cook from quite a young age because I okay. was taught by mum and, and helped by mum uh, in the kitchen. Well, I would help mum in the kitchen uh, along with my mm. sister by cooking lots of stews on a Sunday night. And we would basically yeah. freeze those and then have them over the course of the week with, with, with rice. <laughs> nice. And that was a, a very, if you ask any, any West African kid, if that was a, a, um, 
a constant in their house, they'll agree, you know, and the, the, the myth and the legend of the container is something that plays a big part of my past. It's funny, right? Because within that container thing really made me laugh because within Asian families, so it's the same. And we, there's like, again, like sub, it's very like niche joke, but there's always like these jokes about like the Vitalite margarine containers that like, if you were Asian in the eighties, you basically had like, your fridge was full of them. Like, was there like any equivalent? Oh yeah, um, it's the vanilla, <laughs> vanilla ice cream tub. And it yeah. was the most disappointing thing in the world <laughs> to see the ice cream tub in the freezer and get excited and open it. And find it's a stew. Yeah, and find find a, a tomato stew in there. It's just heartbreaking. <laughs> you know, just see, open it and find contombre or some spinach stew or something. It's like, no, this, this is what I came here for. <laughs> I was hoping for a scoop of vanilla. But um, yeah, we, we used to have, the, those were the containers that would be recycled. And occasionally somebody would spring for an Ikea set of 20 and then you'd be Ooh. the flashy person that Flash, would yeah. have all of your containers stolen whenever people came round for dinner. What about now? Do you do much cooking now? Um, not as much as I'd like. I'm really uh, more busy than I've ever been. And I know that that's an excuse that a lot of young yeah. men make. But as a single guy uh, who works a lot, you know, you're you're out all hours, um, not partying because I haven't got the energy for that, but I'm working a hell of a lot. Yeah. And because of that... Um, I'm either eating out or I'll take a dinner meeting just to save myself and do kill two birds with one stone or, you know, get home and get an order in or just cook something okay. really simple. So I went pescatarian um, uh, a few years ago. I went vegetarian quite a few years ago. Yeah. And only in May of this year did I come back to fish. And the reason for that was because I was getting bored of cooking the same things, uh, but also because I just wanted the ease of having something quick that I could cook that was nourishing and that wasn't just veg. So fish has suddenly made my life a lot easier by bringing that back into my diet. So, you know, I can talk about this as a food podcast. Literally yesterday, I whipped up a couple of bits of sa- uh, bits of haddock, actually, and just oh, had that with the salad. And it was just brilliant because it was like, okay, 25 minutes, everything's done. And there's not a lot you need to ingredient-wise, but in, in terms of ingredients, you've got fish. Is there anything that you always have in your store cupboards as a emergency go-to yeah well it's, it's not a food it's more of a seasoning because i was raised on west african food so i always have all-purpose seasoning in my fridge always the magic one like um, with- the, the magic cubes yeah um i'll have but the more the all-purpose the all-purpose um, raja in the packet yeah all-purpose yeah. raja that's that's me i'm a raja boy so i have every kind of every kind of raja from your powdered garlics to your masala to whatever i have it all in the cupboard. I was raised on flavour. Like, I've got no choice. If it's not seasoned, I'm not interested. When, you know, when people just say that salt and pepper is, is a seasoning, I always, I find myself having to keep my mouth closed because there's there's so much yes. more out there in terms of the, the realm of how you season a meal or whatever. And one of my favourite quick and easy things to cook that I sometimes have in the evening, even though that sacrilege is just a shakshuka because it's super easy and so tasty and flavourful. But it's, you know, it's it's good for you. It really is. I love a good shatsuka. Um, I just love that combination of like tomatoes and eggs and peppers. Uh, but you know, Reggie, it isn't sacrilegious at all because, you know, when I was in Palestine, you know, my photographer Riot would make us the most delicious shakshukas for dinner. And it's just perfect because it's just so quick and easy to whip up. This year, Waitrose and John Lewis are continuing their work with Fairshare and Homestart to help support families in need at Christmas. The partnership will donate £1 million to these and other local charities, and it's easy for you to give too. Just visit waitrose.com 
forward slash love. Together, we can make a real difference to families in need. To find out more, including full terms and conditions, please go to waitrose.com forward slash love. Stepping out of the kitchen, Reggie, one of the things that I find really striking about your work is just how prolific you've been. I mean, I'm pretty much the same age as you, and I feel like you've <laughs> you've been like a presence on screens and radio and you know short films for pretty much the whole of my life right so like as like a kid as like a child actor you know I obviously really remember you from like Top of the Pops or like Grange Hill as well actually um and then you know BBC Radio One and then like the brilliant pivot you did into documentary making and then you know just even the last few years what you what you've been doing um you know whether it's kind of new businesses or new food enterprises so I mean, I just got tired reading all of that out just now. Uh, so I want to know, like, what is the Reggie Yates secret to creativity and productivity? What is it? What gives you the juice? That's that's very kind. And I apologize for haunting your entire life. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a very strange position to be in when, and I'm sure you've interviewed a lot of people that have had long careers, but for me, the, the thing that people say to me on the street all the time is I grew up with you, which yeah. is, is something that I've grown to love and something that I recognize the more time goes on, how unique that is to have that level of a relationship with your audience. And I'm incredibly thankful for it because, as you've said, I've literally been the same age as a lot of my audience as I've grown up because my uh, work and my tastes have grown and changed as I've grown and changed and thankfully mm. there's been an audience of people that have been on that journey with me and because of the nature of some of the work that I've done particularly children's television the really interesting thing about that was people a decade younger than me have come on that journey also because mm. I was talking that sounds terrible I was talking down to them as a teenager talking to children who were sat there in their pjs on Sunday mornings watching me host children's television linking between cartoons and whatnot so there's a um, two generations of people that I've grown up with. And then weirdly, by moving into documentaries, I started to catch their parents as well. Uh, and by making documentaries for channels like BBC One as opposed to BBC Three, which I've done both of, you suddenly find this new audience. And uh, I found that my parents' age has started watching me and, and enjoying my work. So in terms of being prolific, I wouldn't say it's prolific. I think it's just the... Uh, the understandable and expected amount for somebody who uh, just works hard, but because yeah. we're talking about three decades amalgamated, it feels like a lot more than it probably should be. Um, I'm, I'm going to interject there. I think that is a very generous explanation because so many people work very hard for three decades, but very few people do the kind of jumps that you've managed to do across different genres. So I think you need to give yourself a bit more credit for that because that is very unique. Genuinely, that's very kind. I think that if I'm going to be really transparent about it, I think a lot of it has come from never really wanting to settle and also moving when I feel as though I'm no longer learning. That yeah. has been a big thing for me to continue to learn and to continue to push myself. But more importantly, I think as I've got older, the desire to express myself has become more and more important for me. It's grown in its importance. It's grown in its um, in its need within me. And the way that I've been able to express myself has been by pivoting, as you put it, and uh, going from children's television where 
the expression of self has come in making jokes or trying to be funny. Um, and that was the way that I would find a bit of me in what was a script that was quite rigid. And then in moving entertainment, it was more of a similar thing. But in documentary, there is no script. And the beautiful thing I found in factual filmmaking was exactly that. I had to be grounded in the facts of not only the situation, but also who I am and also who I was becoming on screen. Um, so those pivots and those moments of change have come from me desperately needing to express myself and doing it through the work, through factual filmmaking, where I tackle subject matter that speaks to my interests or the things that I care about. Um, and now drama as a writer and director, being able to write about the realities of young people growing up with reality television and, and fame and, and, and suicide being such a huge talking point, particularly for young men. You know, I wrote a drama pertaining to all of those things and make me famous. And now we're talking about representation and also, you know, what it actually means to be a young man of colour growing up in London, in the inner city, but not speaking to the more commonly used narrative. You know, it's not everybody that is that is escaping the gang or juggling the knife crime issue, which are all very real things. But for me, with Pirates, um, I really wanted to lean into the joy that I experienced because that is and continues to be a huge part of my life. And I have always lived in and continue to live in London. And yes, there are some sad and difficult things about this city, but there's also so much joy here. Well, I think that's just so important, isn't it? I think um, for all communities of colour, having stories that kind of uplift and tell our narratives from a very, you know, different state to how like it's normally presented in like, you know, the media in, you know, mainstream media. Um, and what really struck me from what you just said, but also I think just from having seen and watched your journey is it kind of feels that you... Like you've you've been really kind of also like searching for your voice and wanting to like find spaces where you can be like, look, I don't want to be presenting for other things. I want to be me, you know, mm -hmm. Reggie Yates talking about the issues that matter to me. Um, does that resonate with you? And like, do you feel, you know, at the state you're at now, like, have you been able to find your voice? More than you know. Um, <laughs> yes, that definitely resonates with me in a lot of ways. Um, I remember... Um, earlier on in my career, I was constantly being told, um, we don't really understand you. We don't really get you. We don't really get what you're trying to, like, where you're coming from. And, um, you know, when somebody who's been working with you for 20 years says that, you recognize that maybe it's not you. Maybe it's them. Maybe mm -hmm. it's the industry. Maybe it's the business not actually giving you the forum to speak in the way in which you can be transparent. Uh, maybe it's the industry not giving you the wiggle room to be your true self. And if I'm going to be honest, I think over time that allowance of me owning uh, my own narrative has, uh, has increased. And now it's at the point where I'm not actually asking permission for people to give me the room to be me. It's either you work with me or, you know, you work with somebody else. And you work with me in the most holistic sense because the the lane that I operate in as a writer and director today or a documentary filmmaker, mm -hmm. if you are going to work with me, you're buying into my perspective. And that is the thing that steers the narrative as opposed to what people might project onto me, which has definitely been the case in the past. Yeah, no, all power to you because I think... Uh, we, we, we receive the, the fruits of that labor actually through the work that you create. 
And it, it kind of leads me on to the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, actually, because, I mean, you've alluded to it a few times in this conversation already, you know, when, especially I think in, in your documentary making, you know, you're a black working class voice in a genre, which, you know, certainly in broadcast and radio has predominantly been dominated by kind of white middle-class voices. I wanted to ask, you know, what advice do you have for, for young people from communities of color who are trying to break into genres where they aren't traditionally represented? And like, what enabled you to kind of have the confidence and go, you know what, no one's doing this, but they need to, I'm going to do it. Um, I think it's a, 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 it starts outside of the workplace. And I think it starts with self and knowing you're who you are and being proud of where you've come from and owning that. Um, <laughs> quite early on, I owned my authenticity to the point where I was very much adamant that I wouldn't do anything that asked me to change who I was to suit somebody else's narrative. And this goes back as early as children's television. You know, um, I remember being told I was insane for saying no to Blue Peter. And I remember being wow. told, like 19 <laughs> years old and they called me in and it was like my, my agent at the time was like, oh, this is a big meeting. It's you know really exciting. You're going to go in and meet the person who runs uh, children's television at the BBC. And, you know, they've got a, a big ask for you. And I went and sat down with this person who's sort of lording it over the desk. And was like, so how do you feel about Blue Peter? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, nah, it's not for me, mate. And he was like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I, you know, I never watched it growing up. So, um, yeah, for me, it was always as a kid about finding uh, a role where I could be me. And I think for anybody that is trying to get into um, television, be that in the factual space or in the dramatic space, the only way that you're going to have a point of difference is by being original and there is only one you. So if you don't double down on your uniqueness, you just become part of the mayonnaise. It's interesting, you know, having spent 10 years on national radio, listening to radio now, and when you hear all of these voices, particularly on commercial radio, they're just interchangeable. And, yeah. you know, I grew up in, in the era of Chris Evans, of Edith and, 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 and you know, all these different people, Sarah Cox, but all these different voices that had personality and that's even before I get into pirate radio and the voices from WNK to Choice to Freak FM to Y2K to all of these different stations that were based on personality that were based on individuals from mainstream radio right the way through to illegal pirate radio so if you are trying to have a career today I think the only way to do it is to double down on your uniqueness and individuality and that is where you might actually get noticed Mm. Yeah, authenticity is key, isn't it? Basically, for all of this stuff, um, and not selling out or compromising. I love that Blue Peter story because I think there is a, you know, with young creatives, there is sometimes this thought process of just like, oh, I should just yes say yes to everything. But if stuff doesn't align with your values or who you are, I'm a big believer of like you just say no and trust that the right thing will will come along. But that takes quite a lot of confidence and self assurance to to know who you are and, and to say no to jobs. It all it all depends on on your perspective. I think I just wasn't raised to be anything but me. I, I wouldn't say that it, you know I'm the most confident person in the world. Yes, I am confident. Otherwise, I wouldn't do what I do. But I was never raised to pretend. I was never raised to fit in. I bumped into this teacher the other day and she told me a story about when I was six and we did show and tell. And I completely had no idea. And the minute she started saying it, I was like, oh my God, that must be true because I remember that item of clothing. So basically mm. there was a day when um, we were all asked to bring into class something that 
we're really proud of kids we're bringing in uh, you know, their granddad's watch or a book that mm. their mum gave them or their favourite toy or whatever. And I came in with this kente waistcoat. And kente wow. cloth is a traditional cloth of Ghana where I'm from, where my family's from. And uh, my mum got me one sewn as a, as a waistcoat and I used to always wear it. And because, you know, it's the, the, the cloth of royalty, it's the cloth of mm. tradition, it's the cloth of occasion. I came in wearing this and told this story about the importance of this cloth and then did like a traditional dance. But that's how I was raised. It was like, this is who yeah. you are. This is what you should be proud of. This is where you're from. Um, and it was normalized to be mm. really invested in your differences. And um, yeah, I, for me, it's never been about confidence. It's just, just been about a sense of self. Going back to your kind of documentary work, which I think out of all the things that I've enjoyed you doing is probably, you know, what I've obviously watched the most in the in the last decade. And I think, you know, it's probably an understatement to say you've, you've put yourself in some pretty, you know, daring and challenging situations, right? Whether it's like meeting like the KKK or I was just talking about that Russia episode with a mate the other like last night or, you know, the, the US prison or kind of going to refugee camps in Iraq. I mean, the list is kind of endless. I'm someone that does that kind of work on, on a much smaller scale. And so I was kind of curious in terms of, you know, how affecting you find some of these processes and, and some of the interviews. And are there any kind of particular stories that stand out in your long realm of documentary making that you feel, yeah, that was one of the most moving experiences? There has been so many moments that uh, will stay with me for the rest of my life. And I think one of the, the best and most um, impactful moments came from recognizing that I was attacking my documentaries in the wrong way because I've made over 40, mm. but they're not all great. Um, they're not all good, to be honest with you. Some of them are rubbish. And I think that that's really important in terms of the, the growth of it all. And to begin with, I was very, def I was definitely being led. I was definitely being guided and being sort of put in situations that quote unquote experienced producers thought was best. But my work in that field got a lot better the minute that I started producing and that I started to uh, steer the narrative more, not because I know everything and not because I'm a genius, but because the films became more authentic when the journey was owned by me. I think the audience could feel that. They could feel that what I've just watched wasn't planned. What I've just seen is authentic. What I've just seen is him reacting in a very real way. And to, to answer your question, uh, I made a, a documentary about a millionaire preacher. That's what we called it anyway, this guy in South mm -hmm. Africa who was essentially getting rich off of his congregation who were poor black people. And I was disgusted by this guy before I'd even met him. I'd made all of these judgments as to who he was and why he was doing this. And halfway through the film, he decided he didn't want to be involved anymore and he pulled out. Um, and the only reason that we finished the film and the only reason that he got back on board was because um, my director, a guy called Sam Wilkinson, he pulled me to one side and he said, mate, it's not about you. This is about the story that we're trying to tell and you are our vessel for this. And that sounds really grandiose. And I, I promise mm. it's not me trying to make out that I'm way more important than I actually am, but he was so right. It was only when I recognized that I have to put myself through these things to tell this story in the most authentic way 
that I realized that I can't be getting personally offended. I can't be taking this stuff on as, as though um, it's a knock on my character. I need to get to the whys as to why this person is saying these horrible things to me, why this person is treating me in such a horrible way. The minute I get to the why, we get to some truth that will make this film excel. And that for me um, was a real light bulb moment and it changed the way that I was making those documentaries. Yeah. I'd love to know a bit about another project you've been working on, Blue Skies. It's a company I know because we sell their products in some of our Waitrose shops and I've written producer stories about them, but you've just become their creative director. Tell us about what that will involve. So yeah, Blue Skies, they're based in Ghana, the country that my mother and father were born in, and uh, they produced fruit for, for decades now. It goes from farm to shelf within, I think it's 24 to, 40, to 48 hours. It's super, yeah. super quick because of that process and because there's literally a customs officer on site at the factory. A community uh, has literally been changed by the emergence of this business. And Blue Skies employs over 3,000 people in a tiny area in Ghana. And as a result, the area has changed dramatically because of that. So I've now come on board uh, off the back of Blue Skies creating from uh, a product that they've had surplus for years, and that's coconuts. They've created a Mm. coconut-based dairy-free ice cream. Which is delicious and comes in four different flavours. It does come in a ton of flavours and I'm not entirely sure what's out versus what I have in my freezer because I'm fighting for samples on a regular basis and there are some delicious flavours. When I asked earlier if there was anything that was always in your kitchen, it's really um, Blue Skies ice cream is always in your freezer. It is, it is. And I think the, the, the reason why, um, you know, this, this has made sense for me to come on board since a company that has existed as one thing and is now going into a new direction is that the opportunity to have uh, a voice for uh, the product that feels authentic, that feels original, is a huge part as to why it was a draw for me. Because I think um, the way in which you present a product can ultimately decide whether the product lives or dies. And um, in the early stages of Blue Skies, before I came on board, the way in which it it was presented didn't really match what I envisaged for it the minute I was made of aware made aware of it and we're just starting to see come through now some of the the things that we've built around the products and how we want to present it to the world because you've actually gone and visited the um the town and that quite a few times in the schools that have grown up around the factory haven't you uh, yes so uh, as we've said a million times you know Ghana is a huge part of uh, of my upbringing culturally, because that is where my parents were born. And I've been going back to Ghana since I was four years old. So that was a huge draw for me uh, that this you know, business uh, exists in Ghana and also employs people in Ghana. Mm-hmm. Um, and also as a, as a massive, massive draw in terms of my involvement, uh, Blue Skies have invested in over 120 community projects, uh, one of which was a school. And uh, we actually visited one of those schools that has been paid for by Blue Skies um, and it was just mind blowing that, you know, people buying these fruit products and buying this dairy free ice cream has essentially allowed an area to educate its young. And that has been a, a very important part of why I think that this product not only uh, needs to be in people's fridges, but also, you know, is making some real, some real positive change. Um, and, you know, one of the, the, the best things about it is that these farmers are being paid properly and you know a fair scoop for farmers is the messaging that's what it is you know when you go to one of these farms 
and you talk directly to these farmers who have been there for years and they talk about the fact that they're able to look after their families because they're doing something that they love. It's just really amazing. brings us nicely on to uh, kitchen grill tea or coffee uh, tea all day I used to be um, a milk and two sugar boy um, and then yeah. I realized like after eight cups a day you're like basically drinking several cups several cans of cola so I took sugar out on my tea and got used to that and then I recognized just how much dairy probably isn't something I should be consuming off the back of a brilliant conversation and then switch to herbal. And uh, yeah, peppermint tea is my thing. So no caffeine? Well, um, I don't really have masses of caffeine in my diet, but I do drink coffee very occasionally. And it's the thing that launches me into a day when I need it. So um, I try and only have the best kind of coffee when I can. How about porridge or cereal? Oh, cereal day. Good Lord. I I don't eat porridge. And the reason is hilarious, actually. The reason I don't eat porridge is quite film related. So I am. Um, I grew up on Eddie Murphy movies, and yeah. you name an Eddie Murphy movie, I've seen it eight times and probably know all the words. And particularly that run that he had from '83 to about '89. Those movies, like Trading Places, Coming to America, all of those movies I've seen over and over again. Beverly Hills Cop, etc. And there's a movie that often gets forgotten called The Golden Child, which is a film about this young. Uh, sort of pure being um, that has these incredible magical powers. Uh, This kid gets kidnapped. Eddie Murphy is the chosen one who is selected to save this kid. And the entire time that this kid is uh, uh, in a a cage by his kidnappers, they're trying to damage his purity by feeding him uh, porridge that has blood in it. So that has forever put me off porridge. Rice pudding, porridge, Anything that looks like that, blame the golden child. I can't touch it. Mash or chips? Come on, that's a silly question. Chips all day. How can you not love chips? I remember I was um, uh, I was uh, I was making a documentary in Kenya about a slum called Kabira, and um, I was living there and working there for about a week. And about Mm -hmm. four or five days in, I was just I was so close to being broken, and it was a Sunday. And I just heard this crazy noise coming from the shack and I walked in and there was about three or 400 people, that's an exaggeration, maybe about 150 people around the tiny TV watching the Manchester Derby and everyone was wearing football shirts. And I was like, are you kidding me? And there was a woman outside on the street frying potatoes. She was making chips. Oh, I can smell them now. And I bought this bag of chips from this lady. She put it in a plastic bag and I sat down with these guys in their Manchester United shirts and Man City shirts and had chips and watched the football in the slum in Kenya. And it was the best bag of chips I've ever had. And chips, just for me, just remind me of being a kid. And like that was one of the first things I was allowed to cook, even though it's the most dangerous thing. I've ever <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I got it right. Like I, I could, Because I'm such a connoisseur of a good chip, I yep. knew straight out the gate how to make a good chip without getting it wrong. And do you have a sauce with it? Or do you just have it neat? Oh, it depends how I'm feeling. You know, sometimes I'm just a salt and vinegar boy. Sometimes you need to mix it up and have some dipping sauce. Um, but yeah, uh, a, a good a good ketchup never hurts. Hey, uh, I think I know the answer to this. Fried or poached? Uh, fried. Um, yeah, I'm disgusting. So yeah, I love fried. It tastes so much nicer too, uh, if we're all honest. Uh, parsley or coriander? Uh, coriander, man. Give me some explosive flavour all day, every day. Chocolate or crisps? 
Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I love chocolate, but you can do so much with crisps. Um, I'm going to say 50-50. I'm going to be a, a loser and say both because they are actually amazing together. If you have crisps and chocolate at the same time, your mind will be blown, particularly if you go for like an executive crisp, like a nice kettle chips, balsamic vinegar and uh, and salt crisp with some chocolate. Yeah. So are you like, you're like literally having a bite of each? Yeah, a bit of both. A McCoy with a bit of galaxy chocolate. Oof. And if you really want to step it up, and be really middle class, go green and black, so the nice kettle chips. We'll have to give that a go. Uh, fruit or veg? Oh, that's difficult. I make a good roasted veg, and I think you, if you, if you have the right mix of veg, like you throw in some parsnips and stuff, it can be quite sweet. So mm. I, I think roasted veg maybe tips it for me over fruit. Okay, spicy or mild? Spicy. Come on, nobody likes mild people. Mild people are rubbish. <laughs> so for supper or a meal out? Meal out. Um, don't get me wrong, I'm quite, um, as I get older, I'm becoming much more of a homebody and my circle of friends is smaller than it's ever been. And I love mm. that. There is something really nice about going for dinner, you know, a sense of occasion of getting dressed up and meeting friends for something to eat or you know, um, the variation of what going for dinner can look like in a city like London is amazing because you can do everything from something quite cheap and cheerful and it's fun and it's easy right the way through to something super, super bougie. So um, nice. I love getting together with friends and going out for a meal. And uh, the final question, uh, recipe or freestyle? Oh, freestyle is great. So there's this um, Ghanaian word that isn't really a word that my mother used to use all the time called which is tree, which means put it in the pot, pour it in the pot. And mum used to like sometimes like at the end of the week when the cupboard was bare, we'd be like, oh, mum, what are we having for dinner? She'd go, I'm basically cooking what I've got in the cupboard. So it's like put it in the pot, pour it in the pot. So feel free to use that one uh, when the cupboard's empty. But they're, they're often the best meals. You can never recreate them again, but they're always, or they usually are delicious. That's the kitchen grill. Thank you. That's the Kitchen Grill. And you have left us feeling hungry for so much stuff at the end of this uh, episode, Reggie. Thank you so much for joining us on Life on a Plate. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And I can't wait to see Pirates and have a scoop of that ice cream. Mm. Thank you so much. And genuinely, I'm not saying this just because uh, it's the nice thing to say, but you guys are fantastic. I really enjoyed talking to you this morning. So thank you for being so lovely. You've been listening to Life on a Plate from Waitrose with me, Yasmin Khan. Thank you to my co-host, Alison Okavy, and our guest, Reggie Yates. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find more like it by subscribing to Life on a Plate wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about the series, go visit waitrose.com forward slash podcast. Mm-hmm.